So good morning or good evening, wherever you may be. So I'm sure most, if not everyone listening to this, started this morning with a positive intention about what they would be doing during the day, wanting to benefit other beings as much as possible, wanting to avoid doing anything harmful to any being as much as possible, and wanting to create the causes for Buddhahood, becoming a fully enlightened Buddha, in order to help all living beings to the best of our ability. So sometimes during the day our mind can get distracted from our positive intention, so it's good to remind ourselves of it, to bring our mind back to that state of mind we had earlier. So we're now going to be spending the next hour or so focusing on the text, a wonderful, beautiful text by Shantideva, Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life or Engaging in the Bodhisattva Deeds, different ways of translating the titles uh, Bodhicharyavatara. So this is a really wonderful text. We're incredibly fortunate to have the chance to look at it and think about it, meditate on it, and so on. And so let's make sure we're really doing this, thinking of all living beings. Uh, Of course, it's beneficial for ourselves to learn about this text. It helps us to live a better life, to have more positive thoughts and feelings, more happiness and peace. But we shouldn't think only of ourselves. We should think of others wanting to bring happiness and peace to others, wanting to help others learn how to improve themselves and their lives, and especially to learn how to follow the path to enlightenment, to Buddhahood. So really do your best to bring that thought, that attitude into your mind. The reason for being here, for participating in this session, listening to this talk, is an altruistic one. Wanting to benefit others, as many people as possible, as many beings as possible, all throughout the universe. Both short-term, bringing them greater peace and happiness, and long-term, doing what will enable all of us to actualize our Buddha nature, our potential for enlightenment.
Okay, so today we will do a review of the first 18 verses of chapter 4. Um, and before we get into chapter 4, just to recap the main points of the first three chapters, which she taught and we also did a review of. Um, so chapter 1 is an introduction to bodhicitta, explaining what is bodhicitta, the mind of enlightenment, and, um, and the two kinds of bodhicitta, aspiring and engaging bodhicittas. And it also talks about the benefits of generating this mind of bodhicitta, um, so that we will be inspired to generate it. So if we know the benefits of having bodhicitta in our mind, then we'll be more likely to work on getting that state of mind. However, generating bodhicitta is not so easy, not just a question of wishing to have that state of mind. We have to work at it. It does take time and effort. And also, to be able to generate bodhicitta, we need to purify or clear away opposing conditions, opposing factors in our mind, which are obscurations. Um, these are things we collected in the past, in this life and also in past lives, um, because of the presence in our mind of afflictive emotions like ignorance, greed, hatred, and so on. So these have been accumulating in our mind for countless lifetimes. There's lots of that stuff that obscures our mind and can prevent the development of bodhicitta. So that needs to be cleared away. Um, another thing we need to do is to accumulate uh, conducive factors, conducive conditions, uh, also known as merit or positive energy. And this is similar to, let's say we want to have a nice garden with nice veggies and flowers growing. Um, we need to nourish the soil, make sure that there's the right nutrients and moisture in the soil for the seeds to grow and produce these um, fruits and veggies and so on. So in a similar way, we need to nourish our mind with positive potential, positive energy, so that you know the seeds of compassion and love mm -hmm. and generosity and so on, bodhicitta will grow there. So, so those two things, purifying and accumulating positive energy. And there are methods um, for how to do that. And these are explained in chapters two and three. Uh, chapter 2 in particular contains a very extensive explanation of confession of non-virtuous actions done in the past. So that enables us to clear away that negative energy. Um, chapter 2 also has a few verses about um, doing prostrations and making offerings. So those are the first two of the seven limbs, uh, which 
The seven limbs contain the essential practices for purification and accumulating merit. So the first two limbs are prostration and making offerings. So those are included in in chapter two, and those are for accumulating merit. And then chapter three uh, contains the remaining limbs, rejoicing and so forth. And um, those are mainly for accumulating merit. So chapter two and three then contain uh, these practices for clearing away the negative energy, the obscuring conditions in our mind and accumulating positive energy, which will enable us to develop bodhicitta. And then chapter three also has verses to affirm this commitment to following the bodhisattva's path, um, doing the bodhisattva's practices, like six perfections, taking the bodhisattva vow, and so on. Um, And so then, you know, after going through those verses in chapter three, we looked at the bodhisattva vow, the details of that, the 18 root downfalls and the 46 secondary uh, misdeeds. So it was nice to have a chance to review those. So that's what's been covered so far. And now chapter four, the title of chapter four is Conscientiousness. And this chapter has a total of 48 verses. And it's at this point the text starts to go through the six perfections, which are the main practices done by a bodhisattva, somebody who aspires to reach enlightenment. Um, Although the first perfection, the perfection of giving, isn't really explicitly found in one particular place in the text. It's kind of scattered here and there. Um, because in the first couple of chapters, there's verses about giving, giving, you know, everything to sentient beings and so on. And also chapter 10 at the end, uh, which contains all these beautiful verses of dedication, the basis for the star-spangled compassion. (laughs) Beautiful song. Yeah, so this is also, you know, about giving, giving to others. So, so chapter four then starts with uh, perfection number two, which is um, sometimes it's called morality or ethics or ethical conduct. I usually use the word ethics just to keep it simple. Um, and Shanti Deva's text itself doesn't really explain what ethics is. Like he doesn't really give a definition of it. Maybe because the audience he was talking to consisted of monks studying at Nalanda Monastery. And maybe they already knew what ethics was. They didn't need that explained. (laughs) But not everybody studying this text has studied other things. So they may not know exactly what ethics is. And so I'll just share a little bit of information from... One of my favorite Lamrim books um, called The Path to Enlightenment in Tibetan Buddhism by Geshe Lodun. Lodun. Um, it's actually a commentary to the Lamrim Chanmo. So he has a nice way of explaining things. So in there he says, the nature of ethics is that it's the virtuous thought 
to abandon both harming others and the thoughts that are the basis of harming others. I'll repeat that. It's the virtuous thought to abandon both harming others and the thoughts that are the basis of harming others. So I was was really happy when I came across that explanation. What exactly is ethics? What's the basis, the essence of ethics? It's refraining from harmful actions, starting with killing and, uh, you know, going down to even more very, very subtle ways in which we can harm others just by giving them a dirty look or (laughs) having negative thoughts in our mind. (laughs) And so we stop those kind of actions that are harmful to others, and even the thoughts that are the basis of harming others. I mean, it's easy to stop yourself from doing harmful things, but to stop having harmful thoughts, that's, that's hard. Yeah. Um, so thoughts of harming others might still come up in our mind for a while, but ethics includes even overcoming those learning to not even think of harming others. So it's quite a big, big thing. And he also talks about, you know, how to develop the perfection of ethics. Um, And we can start by understanding the importance of ethics and the benefits of ethics. Again, if we can see how beneficial it is, we'll be more inspired to practice it. so one thing is, it's, it's the cause of good rebirths in our future lives. If we practice the first perfection of giving generosity, but we don't have good ethics, there's the danger that in, a, in, a, in our next life or in future lives, we might end up as a being in the lower realms who uh, is able to enjoy wealth, a good life. So we... You know, wealth is the result of giving, but without ethics, you might be in the lower realms, but wealthy. (laughs) For example, President Biden's dogs. I mean, being able to live in the White House, that's pretty, (laughs) pretty nice. They probably have a really nice life, get good food, a comfortable place to live, everything they need. Or even better, Queen Elizabeth's dogs living in Buckingham (laughs) Palace. They probably have satin cushions to to sleep on. (laughs) I even hear about people who, (laughs) like wealthy people, when they die, they leave in their will, they leave all their wealth to their pet. That's really weird. (laughs) But anyway... (laughs) So those, those are examples of, of beings who must have created a lot of, of giving, a lot of generosity in past lives so that they end up in this kind of very comfortable situation, access to you know, good conditions, but didn't, weren't so good when it came to practicing ethics. So as a result of not practicing ethics, they end up in an unfortunate rebirth. Yeah, so this could happen to us too if we're not careful. <laughs> when I, I I was in Tibet uh, back in 1987 and visiting a number of monasteries and 
<laughs> some of these monasteries, I mean, of course, because of the Chinese takeover and so on, there weren't so many monks, but often there were lots of dogs, much more dogs, many more dogs than monks. And the Tibetans say, <laughs> these may have been monks in their past life who didn't keep their vows properly. So they have this strong connection to the Dharma, hanging around a monastery, living in a monastery, but unable to make use of, of that situation. So that was a powerful lesson. Yeah. Yeah, so as a, as a being in an uh, unfortunate realm, like a, an animal, um, it's just not possible to, even, even if you have a comfortable life, plenty of food and so on, but you cannot make use of, of your life to create virtue, to, um, you know, to create good karma, to get yourself out of that situation and back into a human life. Very, very, very difficult. Because even like the first of the 10 virtuous actions uh, is not killing, refraining from killing. And to be able to create the virtue of not killing, it's not enough just to not kill, but you have to do that on the basis of understanding that killing is a harmful thing to do. And you consciously decide, I'm not going to do that. So our lovely friends here, the deer, you know, they probably never kill in their whole life. It's just not part of their nature, their food source, and so on. They, they don't kill. But are they creating the virtuous action of not killing? Probably not because they, they can't understand, you know, the dangers, the harmfulness of not killing, and they're not making the conscious decision to not kill. So it's not that easy to really create virtue. One needs to have a mind that's able to understand what is virtue, what is non-virtue, what is good karma, what is bad karma, and then make that decision, I'm going to create virtue. I'm going to refrain from non-virtue. I'm going to create good karma and avoid bad karma. So an animal, probably, unless they're very special, <laughs> is not able to do that. So our you know, present human life is the result of practicing ethics in past life. Just the fact that we have this human body, and especially being so fortunate to meet the Dharma and want to practice the Dharma, want to practice ethics. It means we practiced ethics in past lives. So we really have to make sure we do it again this lifetime, make sure that we continue having such good conditions in future lives. Also, um, without the practice of ethics, the results of giving can soon be exhausted. So again, the results of giving are wealth. And as a result of giving, one might have wealth, but without having ethics, then it's possible to lose the wealth. So we have lots of examples of that, of people who may be wealthy, but then lose their wealth, lose their money, because of various causes and conditions. So that's another result of lack of ethics. So that's just talking about worldly kind of experiences, but in terms of the Dharma, spiritual experiences, ethics is the foundation of all good qualities, 
the growth of good qualities in our mind, and all realizations of the path. So all the realizations, all the different stages of the path, calm abiding, special insight, you know, the different paths and grounds that we're trying to follow to reach enlightenment. So ethics is the basis of those. This is said many times in the Buddha's teachings. He says the earth, uh, ethics is like the earth. The earth is the foundation of all, all that lives on the earth, all the animate and inanimate things. In the similar way, ethics is the foundation of all the stages of the path. Buddha also said that ethics is like a beautiful ornament. A person who has good ethics behaves in a non-harmful way, a non-violent way. Um, their speech is gentle and considerate, and their mind is um, subdued, free of hatred and greed and ignorance. So other people will feel safe, relaxed, and happy around a person who has good ethics and are attracted to such a person. Well, maybe not everybody. <laughs> Some people might want to run away, but... <laughs> Generally, I think most people, we just look at our own experience, we probably feel more attracted to people who are truthful and honest and ethical and non-harmful, like being around people like that, and avoid people who are dishonest and harmful. And so another thing to do to um, like generate or develop ethics is to be around people who do have good ethics because we're easily influenced by the people we hang around with. So try to stay with others who have good ethics. So those are some things that can help us in our practice of ethics. And then also just like the golden rule, what we call the golden rule in the West, you know, just think about how just like I don't want to suffer, I don't want to be harmed, I don't want to be mistreated, that's true for everybody else. Nobody wants to be harmed. So that can stop us from doing hurtful things to others. And also to realize that if we do harmful things to others, we're also harming ourselves. Creating suffering for ourselves. So those are some things that can help us, and I'm sure more will come later as we go through the chapter. Okay, so the title of the chapter is uh, Conscientiousness, and this is one of the 11 virtuous mental factors. And in volume two, foundation, what's it called? Foundation of Buddhist practice. <laughs> it's easier to say volume one, volume two, and remember the titles. Uh, so there it goes through all the different mental factors. So in there, the explanation of conscientiousness is um, it values the accumulation of virtue and guards the mind against that which gives rise to afflictions. That's a mental factor that really values virtue sees virtue as worthwhile and important and protects the mind against whatever would cause afflictions to arise, attachment, aversion, and so forth. 
Also, it brings to fulfillment and maintains all that is good, keeps the mind from pollution. I guess pollution means, yeah, afflictive thoughts and emotions. And is the root for attaining all grounds and paths. So I guess as an example, we could just think we've all taken certain vows or precepts and um, we probably took them with a very good intention and the aspiration to keep them to the best of our ability. So conscientiousness maintains that sense that this is a good thing to do, you know, keeping keeping my precepts is a good thing to do and I value that and I really want to keep doing that and live my life in that way and and so it sort of you know guards us against whatever might lead us to break our precepts and uh, confess them when we do break them and, and so on so in that way it helps us to keep our our precepts our uh, commitments not break them and in that way we're creating virtue and creating the causes for realizations and other things we need to progress along the path. Yeah, so this mental factor is essential if we really want to follow the path to enlightenment and bring to fruition all our positive aspirations for ourselves and others. So, um, at the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Having firmly upheld the mind of enlightenment in this way, a victor's child, in other words, uh, another term for bodhisattva, should always make effort to not transgress the trainings without ever wavering. So this follows on from chapter 3, where... You know, Shantideva talks about making the commitment, the vow, the promise to work for all sentient beings, to become a Buddha for all sentient beings. So that's like a commitment, a promise. So having made that promise, one needs to keep it. Yeah, it doesn't make sense to make a promise one day and then completely give it up the next day. So we need to keep our promise and not... uh, go against the trainings, the practices that are part of that promise. In other words, the bodhisattva vow, um, the six perfections, the main practices of a bodhisattva. And also there's this other list of four things that are called the four means of gathering disciples. This is also part of the bodhisattva's practice. Does anyone remember what those are, any of them? Generosity. Generosity. So the first one is giving. Um, People like receiving gifts. (laughs) So this is a way to attract people. (laughs) Um, Giving them gifts. And and not just like to flatter them, but in the case of uh, teachers, um, you know, for example, in Tibet, um, the teachers would give food to their disciples. Sometimes the disciples had nothing to eat, so they really depended on the teacher, not just for teaching, but also for their for their sustenance and so on, and clothes. Yeah, so giving things. So that's a way of 
creating a good bond, a good connection with disciples and helping them feel more open and receptive to what you might have to say. So I don't know if you've ever had the experience of get of being given a gift by by a teacher, but even if it's, you know, something really small like this, you know, it's like, oh wow, my teacher gave me this. Oh, you know, it's like it's really, really special. And it does, yeah, makes you feel really, wow, she or he is so kind, so so precious. <laughs> Okay, so that's the first one. The second one? Teaching. Teaching them, but in a nice way, using pleasant words, not screaming at them and yelling them and telling them they're going to go to hell because of all the bad things they've done. <laughs> but at least in the beginning, you know. <laughs> you don't want to scare them away. <laughs> So you speak in a pleasant way <laughs> and teach them things that will benefit them, that will bring them happiness and, and, uh, and you know, again, not flattering, but, you know, talking about how important it is to be kind, to be generous, to practice virtue, and so on and so forth. So starting to teach them. And then the third one is that's the last one. Yeah. What did you say? Yeah, that's the fourth one. <laughs> that's another one in between. Yeah, it's something called working for the aims. And the way it's explained is getting your students to practice. So I guess that's going beyond just teaching them the Dharma, but you also want to make sure that they're not just accumulating information in their heads, but they start to put it into practice. So giving them encouragement and help getting them to do prostrations, getting them to do mantle offerings, and then so on and so forth. So actually getting them to practice the Dharma. So they're, they're starting to you know, change their karma, creating more virtue and abandoning non-virtue. And then the fourth one is, as was already mentioned, practicing what you preach, walk your talk. So that's really important too, because if you tell your disciples to do one thing and then you're doing the opposite, that's not going to work. Okay, so those are also part of the bodhisattva's um, practice. So... So having made this commitment to follow the Bodhisattva's path, we have to stick to it. And then verse 2, he goes on to say, In the case of a reckless undertaking, or one not well examined, although a promise may have been made, it is reasonable to examine, shall I do it or leave it? So, I don't know, I thought of an example, like if someone says, hey, can you help me this afternoon? I'm going to make granola in the <laughs> kitchen. And we say, sure, I'll be happy to help. But you haven't really thought carefully about it. And then you realize later, oh, no, I have this important meeting at 3 o'clock. I can't skip that. So then you need to, you know, reconsider. <laughs> 
this promise that you made to make granola. So that's just an example. But yeah, sometimes we do promise to do things without thinking carefully. And if it's not, if it's something not so important, it's okay to say, no, sorry, I can't keep my promise. But then in verse three says, but how can I ever withdraw from what has been examined by the great wisdom of the Buddhas and their children? and has been examined and examined by myself. So here he's talking about this promise that we make to follow the bodhisattva's path, to you know, keep bodhisattva vow for the benefit of all sentient beings. So ideally, we don't make such a promise recklessly without careful thought, careful consideration. But, you know, we should really learn uh, about the, you know, the bodhisattva's path, think about it carefully, check to see if we are capable of doing this. So after a lot of careful thought and consideration again and again, and thinking about, you know, this is what the Buddhas did, and this is what the bodhisattvas did, this is the path they followed, and if I want to be like them, I need to follow this path as well. So if you know, we've gone through that careful consideration and then made this promise, would it be right to back off from it? And verse 4 says, If having made such a promise, I do not accomplish it through action, then by deceiving all those sentient beings, what kind of rebirth will I take? So making this promise to keep the bodhisattva vow, work for enlightenment to help all sentient beings, it's like a promise that we're making to all sentient beings. We're saying to all sentient beings, I'm going to help you. I'm going to, you know, follow this path, reach enlightenment, and then work for your benefit as long as samsara ends, you know, until samsara ends, something like that. Um, so it's, it's like a promise we're making to all sentient beings. And a big one. <laughs> Not just, I'm going to give you chocolate, but you know, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get you out of samsara and get you to enlightenment. So it's a huge promise. So if we go back on that promise, if we say, nope, I'm not going to do that, then it's like deceiving all sentient beings, cheating all sentient beings, letting them down. So if we do that, what kind of karma are we creating? What kind of consequences will we experience? Well, the next verse <laughs> says, If it has been taught that he who does not give away the smallest thing he mentally thought to give will become a hungry ghost, and the commentaries of Gyaltsev J and uh, another one, Drakpa Gyaltsen, they have quotations from sutras. One sutra it says it's the sutra of the close placement of mindfulness. And the quotation says, if having intended the slightest, one does not give, one will be born in the migration of the hungry ghosts. If one does not carry out one's promise, one will become a migrating being who is a hell sentient being. 
So if we make a, a promise to do something and then we don't carry it out, we're creating very negative karma. Another sutra, sutra of discriminating migrating beings says, whichever person by not giving the rice and vegetables, the roots and fruits they intended to, will experience the hungry ghost world and terrifying suffering. So these are sutra quotations for, you know, backing up what Shantideva says, that, you know, after promising to benefit all sentient beings, um, then giving that up, that this is the cause of unfortunate rebirth. So it's very, very negative. So he says in the next verse, verse 6, Then if I should deceive all migrating beings, after having from my heart invited them to unsurpassable happiness, what kind of happy migration will I go to? So this is a heavy consequence of promising, I'm going to help all you sentient beings all over the universe, making such a promise and then going back on it. But I was thinking, um, it might happen. In fact, I'm sure it does happen. <laughs> some, some Western people, <laughs> you know, may wander into situations where the bodhisattva vows are being given and, you know, they kind of go along with it and then realize, wait, what am I doing? This actually happened once when I was living in France and Rajagini um, Institute, some high lama came and gave a, a high tantric initiation. And one woman came to this event. She must have been told by a friend, oh, there's this lama, you have to come, you have to come. So she came to this initiation and I think it was her very first time ever in a Dharma center. She had no idea what was going on. And at the end, she was told, oh, now you have bodhisattva vows, you have tantric vows, you have to do the succession yoga every day. <laughs> she had a meltdown. And <laughs> so somebody brought her to see the Lama and, you know, explain what had happened. And he was so nice. He said, don't worry, you didn't receive the initiation. <laughs> So that kind of thing probably happens quite a lot, you know. We're attracted by these names and events and have no idea what's going on. Dalai Lama giving Kali Chakra initiation in Washington, D.C. or whatever. Yeah, oh yeah, that sounds great, I go to that. Although it's probably explained clearly in those kind of events that you don't have to actually take the initiation, you can just sit there and get a, a blessing. But still, some people may not really understand what's going on. So these kind of situations, if you didn't really know what was going on, you didn't really know what you were doing, then you don't, you're not really making the promise, so you don't have to feel, um, I've got this big responsibility now. And then verse 7 says, only the omniscient ones can discern the inconceivable manner of the action of those who give up the mind of enlightenment but are liberated. So it mentions in the commentaries um, the story of Shariputra. So Shariputra um, generated bodhicitta but then gave it up uh, after he was approached by some Mara, like this evil 
naughty being who asked for his hand and he cut off his hand. What is it? He cut off his right hand with his left hand and then used his left hand to give the right hand. And that's very impolite in Indian society. So Mara then abused him. So Shariputra, you know, got very discouraged and gave up his bodhicitta. But he still went on to attain liberation, nirvana. So Shanti Deva is saying here that only a Buddha can understand how this can happen, how you can give up bodhicitta, which is such a negative thing to do, and still go on to attain nirvana. Um, and I was thinking about Achan Mun. We were talking about him. But I wondered if, when, is it the case that, that when he took the bodhisattva vow, that was in a previous life? And then in the present life, when he became, I guess he became an arhat, maybe in that life he didn't take the bodhisattva vow, he didn't renew the bodhisattva vow, is that right? He told the story of giving it up. Oh, he actually gave it up. So he had it in that same lifetime. Because if he was born in Thailand, it's very unlikely <laughs> that he would have taken the Bodhisattva vow. Maybe he just remembered that he took it in a previous life. People may remember the details better, but, but the story was about a woman that he had been involved with often over many lifetimes that they had taken the Bodhisattva vow together. And I believe it was in this life that he gave it up in mm -hmm. her presence, and she was so upset that he had done that. But it may have been a memory from another life. I'm not sure about that. Yeah. But it did involve this kind of agreement he had with another person, mm. and her, um, you know, being really unhappy about, mm, okay. you know, for him. Anyway, I was thinking that might be a, a different situation if the Bodhisattva vow was taken in a previous life, and then in the present life, one didn't renew it retake it because if you don't retake the vows you're not responsible for them like you know we've probably all taken bodhisattva vows in past lives but you know when we're little kids we're fighting with our siblings and our classmates and they hit us and we hit them back and they insult us and we insult them back i don't think we're breaking our bodhisattva vows <laughs> because you know <laughs> we haven't yet taken them <laughs> and are responsible for them so there might be that that situation, you know, if you haven't actually done it in this lifetime. I don't know about Shariputra, if he, t if it was the same lifetime in which he, you know, took on the Bodhisattva vow and then in the same lifetime gave it up. But that, I'm just thinking that might be a different situation. But still, yeah, it's a, it's not a good thing to do. Um, and verse Eight says, this for a bodhisattva is the heaviest of downfalls. If it were to occur, the welfare of all sentient beings would be weakened. So among the root downfalls, the 18 root downfalls, number 18 is abandoning bodhicitta. And it said, if you do that, you don't need those four binding factors for it to be broken. It's automatically, immediately broken. You've lost your bodhisattva vow and the whole vow, the whole bodhisattva vow is lost. So it needs to be retaken. So that's considered the gravest of all the downfalls for a bodhisattva. 
And why? It's because it harms sentient beings. It's, it's a breaking a promise to sentient beings, interfering with the welfare of sentient beings. So it's something we should really try to avoid. And then verse 9 says, should others even for an instant, sorry, should others for even a single instant hinder or obstruct his merit by weakening the welfare of sentient beings, there will be no end to their unfortunate rebirths. So this is talking about cases where somebody else is trying to interfere with a bodhisattva's merit or virtue, like a bodhisattva is trying to practice generosity or trying to practice ethics and somebody else is making problems for them, interfering with their practice. So if they, if that happens, then this person will create the cause for many unfortunate rebirths. And there's a sutra, uh, in the commentaries, there's a quotation from a sutra, which is called the Sutra of Magical Emanations Definitely Pacifying. And this sutra says, It is heavier to destruct the virtue of a bodhisattva, of giving some food and drink to an animal, than to rob all the sentient beings of Jambudvipa, of their food, and kill them. Jambudvipa is, the, is, you know, in the classical presentation, like in the mandala, the world where we are, the southern continent. And there's a lot of sentient beings in Jambudvipa. So taking away all their food and killing them, that's a pretty heavy thing to do. But the sutra says, if we interfere with a bodhisattva who's just giving a little bit of food and drink to an animal, that is heavier that is worse karma, killing, robbing and killing all the sentient beings of Jambudvipa. We are advised to be careful because we don't know who is a bodhisattva. Necessarily, you know, clear to, clearly identified with a certain uniform. Um, so just to be on the safe side, we should try to never interfere with anyone who's creating virtue if they're really trying to do something virtuous. We should not interfere, but instead help them. And ver verse 10 says, if I shall degenerate by destroying the happiness of even one sentient being, then what need is there to mention destroying the happiness of all embodied beings, vast as space without exception? So this gives an explanation of why interfering with the bodhisattva's virtue is so heavy. So if we do something that destroys the happiness of one person or one being, I think it's understandable that that is very negative. And we're creating very negative karma, we're creating the cause of suffering for ourselves. So just destroying one sentient being's happiness so then, if we're interfering with the bodhisattva's virtuous deeds, then that means we are obstructing their attainment of enlightenment. We're, you know, causing hindrances to that person attaining enlightenment. And at that, at the point of enlightenment, and even before enlightenment, the bodhisattva is working to help all sentient beings 
and they're, you know, developing their ability to help sentient beings more and more and more the closer they get, closer they get to enlightenment. So by interfering with that bodhisattva's work or activities or deeds, then indirectly we are interfering with um, the benefit of all sentient beings. We're preventing sentient beings from receiving the help of that bodhisattva. So maybe if we think about, let's say, there's a situation where there's a large group of people somewhere, like right now in Yemen, millions, I don't know how many, millions of people who are without food, without medical, you know, what they need for survival and health and so on and so forth. And let's say there's an aid agency that has prepared a shipment of of food and medicine and, you know, all these kind of things to bring to those people and um, take care of their needs, relieve their suffering. And if we were to do something to interfere with that shipment, you know, if we stop it from going or we destroy it, we blow it up or we divert it <laughs> somewhere else, then that means we're cutting off this aid that will benefit all those millions of people and relieve their suffering, bring them happiness. So I think it's understandable. That's a heavy negative deed, a terrible thing to do. So it's kind of similar. You know, we're interfering with a bodhisattva who has this genuine aspiration to bring benefit to all sentient beings throughout the universe and is, you know, totally dedicated to doing that, bringing, out the, bringing about the benefit of all sentient beings. So interfering with that person is, is negative, very negative. So, so from this we should learn that we should have great respect and appreciation for bodhisattvas and the things that they are doing and um, support them as much as we can. And even if we can't support them, at least don't interfere with them. <laughs> and then verse 11, going back to the bodhisattva themselves giving up Bodhicitta, he says, thus, if those who have the force of a downfall and the force of the mind of enlightenment were to stay revolving within cyclic existence for a long time, they would be hindered from attaining the grounds. It's a little unclear what that means, but in the commentaries it seems to be talking about somebody who first does abandon bodhicitta, so they, they generate bodhicitta and then they give it up, and then later they regenerate bodhicitta. Um, so still in this situation, this kind of person will continue to take rebirth in cyclic existence for a long time and be hindered from attaining the bodhisattva grounds. I don't think that means they will never be able to um, attain the bodhisattva grounds and enlightenment. I mean, that would be impossible, but it's just, it will take longer and they'll be stuck in samsara longer. So, so I think, you know, that's helpful because we might think, Oh, well, never mind if I, you know, abandon bodhicitta, I can take it again. <laughs> they, they do say that. You give up bodhisattva, or you, you lose bodhisattva vows. Never mind, you can take them again. Um, 
But we shouldn't, you know, take that so lightly. I mean, it is true. You know, we can always retake the bodhisattva vow, renew, uh, regenerate uh, bodhicitta. But it's showing here that there are serious consequences. So maybe this would be a bit like, you know, deliberately crashing your car, thinking, never mind, I can take it to the repair shop and they'll fix it up. Uh, yeah, that may be true, <laughs> but it'll take time and probably a lot of money, and maybe it will never run quite the same as it did before. So it's not something we should do. So we should try to avoid as much as we can really try to avoid taking our bodhisattva vow lightly and just letting it degenerate. So Gyaltsabje in his commentary says that we really should strive to avoid degenerating our bodhicitta even at the cost of our life. And Shantideva pretty much says the same thing in the next verse, verse 12. Therefore, just as I have promised, I shall respectfully accomplish it. If from now on I do not strive, I shall descend from lower to lower states. And then next verse, although countless Buddhas have passed by to benefit all sentient beings, yet I was not an object of their care because of my own misdeeds. So this verse seems to be in response to a person who might say, you know, in response to the idea of, you know, giving up your bodhicitta and then falling to lower states of rebirth. Somebody might say, well, yeah, but there's so many Buddhas and bodhisattvas around. They will help me. They will take care of me. They will protect me. It's true. There are lots of Buddhas and bodhisattvas. And there have been, you know, from beginningless time, all the time we've been in samsara, wandering from one life to another. There have been lots of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas around, but and they've been working full, full time to help sentient beings, but we're still here. We're still in samsara. So how come? <laughs> so we shouldn't think that Buddhas and Bodhisattvas can just kind of pick us up out of lower realms and deposit us into a better situation, or that they can pick us up out of samsara and deposit us in the state of, of nirvana or enlightenment. So they can't just rescue us from samsara. It's just not possible. We are responsible. We are the ones who create our own experiences. And so, of course, they're there to help us, to teach us, to guide us. But how they help us, how they how they help us, is by teaching us the Dharma, and that starts with giving up non-virtue and creating virtue. And so, if we don't pay attention to that teaching and we create non-virtue and avoid creating virtue, then there's not much they can do to help us. So it's our own actions that put us where we are. So we can't be careless about our behavior and think, never mind, Buddhism Bodhisattvas will take care of me. They have so much compassion, forgiveness, 
They're totally dedicated to helping all sentient beings, so they will take care of me. I'll be okay. Everything will be okay. I heard, I don't know how true this is, but I heard that there's some Christian groups who have this idea that, well, Jesus died for our sins, and as long as we have faith in Jesus, everything will be okay. We don't have to, you know, behave ourselves. We can create sins and Jesus will take care. <laughs> I don't know if they, <laughs> it might be, it's possible. Just looking at what some Christians do. that <laughs> seem possible. They think, well, as long as I'm on, you know, I'm, on, I'm in Jesus's camp and he died for our sins, so everything will be okay. They don't take too much concern about um, doing what's good and avoiding what's bad. So I think that's definitely a misinterpretation, a misconception. Those who have proper understanding of Christian theology would not agree with that. We have to behave ourselves. We have to do the right things. But anyway, it's just, you know, some, some people might get these misunderstandings, even in Buddhism. <laughs> and then the next verse talks about what will happen if we continue to create misdeeds. If I still act like this again and again, I will likewise experience bad migrations, sickness, bondage, mutilation, and laceration. So, not even, you know, not even talking about the lower realms where, where these horrible things happen, but even in this world, even in planet Earth, yeah, we hear about unbelievably horrible things happening to people and to animals. So these things happen. Why do they happen? It's because of our own misdeeds. And then the next verse, he's reminding us of how fortunate we are to have a precious human rebirth. It says, if the arising of a Tathagata faith, the attainment of a human body, and my being fit to cultivate virtue are rare, when will they be attained again? So he's talking about some of the features of a, a precious human life. Buddha being in the world, having faith in the Buddha, having a human body, and then you know, all the other conditions for a precious human rebirth. These are rare, it's rare to have all these conditions in one life. And we have them now. So if we don't make use of this life now while we have it, and instead waste our time doing things that are meaningless, or even worse, spend our life creating non-virtue, this would be a huge loss. Because when will we have such an opportunity again? And then next verse he reminds us of impermanence. Although today I am healthy, well-nourished, and unafflicted, but life is momentary and deceptive. The body is like an object on loan for but a minute. So it's unwise to have an attitude that's kind of careless and complacent, which is easy to happen. It happens to me. 
you know, oh, things are going really well. We have good food, plenty of food, good conditions to live in. I'm healthy, not experiencing any serious illness. No big problems are happening. And then to feel like this is going to continue on and on and on and on and on and on without end. And then, you know, easy to get careless, maybe waste time, not make good use of the time that we have. So this is not a healthy attitude to have because we don't know what is going to happen tomorrow or even this afternoon or even in the next moment. So like Venerable Sumpton's BBC the other day, you know, pointing out that, you know, Circumstances can change even in a moment, and we could find ourselves coming to the end of our life. So here we probably don't have the problem of a stampede of of college chakra recipients to worry about. <laughs> Not likely to happen here. But after that talk, I was thinking about this um, this thing that happened when I was growing up. I think I was a teenager in Sacramento, and there, there was this restaurant uh, called Farrell's. And I don't know, they might have branches in other places, like an ice cream parlor, parlor. Their speciality is making these enormous ice cream concoctions, different kinds of ice cream and toppings and everything. And they even have one called the trough. <laughs> And it really is a huge dish just full of all these decadent things. And yeah, so there was one of these restaurants uh, right next to the airport. And one day, a plane, just a small plane, it was either taking off or landing. Something went wrong and it crashed right into this restaurant. And the tragic thing was it was lunchtime. It was noon. The place was packed with people. And I've been in there when it's packed. I mean, it really is packed. And everyone's just having such a good time, you know, <laughs> gorging on all this food and enjoying themselves with their friends. So I can't remember how many people died, but it was just a terrible, terrible, terrible tragedy. And later when I was learning the Lam Rim and meditating on the Lam Rim and the nine-point death meditation, and the uncertainty of the time of death, I remember that incident and I thought, oh my God. I mean, <laughs> especially in my case, because I really love eating. And when I'm eating, I, you know, I never think in the next moment I could die. You know, I'm just totally into the food and the next bite of food, the next thing I'm going to get, you know. So I thought, wow, what a terrible state of mind to have at the time of death. I'm sure none of those people you know, sitting there in the restaurant enjoying their ice cream or hot dog or whatever, thought, you know, I'm going to die today. I'm going to die before I even finish my trough. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah, it's really tragic. So, yeah. So then I was thinking... So here, we do sometimes have airplanes going overhead. Yeah, some little ones, also some big ones, also some helicopters. And it's not impossible, you know, it's not impossible that something could happen 
right at that point when they're flying up. Before we came here, yeah, a few decades ago, a single prop plane ran into that hill in a fog, Mount Pisgah, and some of the remnants, records of it have been mm. found over the years. So even in this seemingly safe place, <laughs> you just never know. You never know what could happen. I mean, that's one possibility. It's probably very remote, but it's not impossible. I mean, probably more likely would be, you know, we choke on our food. There's, I've heard of cases of that as well. People who die because something goes down the wrong way and they're not able to get help in time. So, uh, or we'd have a heart attack. When I was in Italy, Lama Tsongkhapa Institute, um, uh, it's quite a kind of a big place and very lively. And there's a little coffee shop. Everybody would, not everybody, but many people would go there after lunch and get their cappuccino and their espresso and so on and so forth. So there's this one guy, a volunteer, who was working behind the counter making espressos for people. And all of a sudden, he crashed to the ground, the floor. He had a heart attack and died. I mean, we have several people in the community. One was a doctor, one was an ambulance driver. They did everything they could. They died very, very fast. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you just never know what could happen, even in the middle of a meal, or even when you're enjoying your espresso. Or not here, but <laughs> you're after <laughs> after lunch, cup of tea or whatever. Yeah, or going for a walk in the woods. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, so these yeah, this that meditation is really, really powerful. Just to realize our life is so fragile. So we really shouldn't take it for granted and be complacent about our life. I mean, that doesn't mean we should get frantic and stress ourselves out, you know, you know, and get lung, <laughs> trying to practice every minute, every second, 24 hours a day. That's the other extreme. But just really do as much as we can and at least try to keep our mind positive, try to mm, not let our mind go down negative tracks, negative roads. Then verse 17 says, with such behavior of mine, I will not obtain even a human body. If this human form is not attained, there will solely be, there will be solely negativity and no virtue. So he's talking about how if we have a human life, a precious human life, and we use this life to create non-virtue, misdeeds and not create virtue, then our next life we won't even have a human life, but be born in an unfortunate situation. So then, once we're there, how can we create virtue there? Next verse he says, If even when I have the good fortune of virtuous conduct, I don't create virtue, then what shall I do when all confused by the suffering of the unfortunate rebirths? So that's just a continuation of that idea. Here we have perfect conditions to create virtue. We can create so much good, do so much good with our life. But it in, instead, if we don't, 
How can we create virtue when we're in an unfortunate rebirth where there's so much confusion, so much suffering? I've heard the Dalai Lama at least once say that, you know, even not talking about the other realms, the unfortunate realms, but just this world itself, just this human world, there's so much suffering right here. So there's plenty of situations here in this world, in the human realm, where we could be born and not be able to do much virtue. We just have so much suffering, like Yemen right now, or Syria. I was also thinking about around Bulgaria in India. It's, it's one of the poorest parts of India. So there are people born very close to Bulgaria, where you have this holy stupa, the holy place where the Buddha attained enlightenment. But they're born into such miserable conditions, so much poverty, hunger, deprivation, abuse. So even though they're so close to a situation where there's a lot of virtue, but they are not able to appreciate it and make use of such a situation. So once again, this is a call to really cherish the opportunity opportunity that we have now, realize it's not going to last forever. We don't know what's going to come next. So really make good use of it. And if we do make good use of it, we do, especially the practice of ethics, that's the main cause for a human rebirth, human life with good conditions. Then we'll have the chance to again meet Dharma and create virtue and continue on our path to enlightenment. So I'll stop there. That's as far as Venerable Children reached, I think, last time. This verse 8 made me wonder about this. It says, this, heaviest, this is the heaviest downfalls for a bodhisattva. So as we're talking about all the, um, you know, the negative things that happen from giving up bodhicitta, I'm wondering if, it's, if that means giving up bodhicitta once you've generated it or giving it up when you're along the path. And that might explain the Ajahn Man thing too. I don't know if there's some, dis I mean, surely, I mean, there's a big difference between my level of, you know, aspiring for bodhicitta and actually having it. But do they talk about, uh, yeah, anyway, talk about it. Well, it's a good question. I mean, he does say in the verse, for a bodhisattva. So that means a bodhisattva is someone who has uncontrived bodhicitta, not just a, a, a beginner trying to develop bodhicitta, but an actual bodhisattva. So yeah, maybe that is one consideration, that for someone who has actually developed the uncontrived, spontaneous, you know, genuine, <laughs> the real thing, bodhicitta, to then give that up, that's really, really heavy. I mean, so yeah. So for us little baby bodhisattva wannabes, I mean, for me anyway, <laughs> I'm trying to be a bodhisattva, but, you know, very far from it. I mean, it's still negative, but probably not as heavy, not as negative as for an actual bodhisattva. That's just my guess. Because the way it's traditionally explained, you know, in some of the traditional texts is first you go through all the methods for generating bodhicitta, you meditate on those again and again and again and again until you have this spontaneous, uncontrived bodhicitta. It's really there. Then you're a bodhisattva. Then you take the bodhisattva vow. 
I mean, nowadays the teachers say, well, you don't have to wait until then. You can take the bodhisattva net vow now. But there's a big difference. I remember once one of our Dharma friends asked Geshe Sopa, you know, why do we, why do you keep giving this over and over? And Geshe Sopala basically said, do you think you have the Bodhisattva vow? <laughs> I've heard that as well. I've heard some teachers say, we don't really have it. Now, yeah, there's probably different opinions on that. <laughs> but like I say, in the traditional text, that's how it's explained. Um, someone online asks, often we make virtuous intentions beyond our capacity and we end up changing our mind or cannot keep them later. Will this be negative because we aren't keeping our promises or would it be positive since we are creating virtuous intentions still, for example, generating the altruistic intention and practicing generosity? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the thir- first thing that popped into my mind <laughs> when you said that was... Um, in the past, uh, I think I've learned my lesson now, but when I had a chance to do a retreat, I would usually start off with all these ideas about what I was going to do, you know, and have this really, really huge program, you know, schedule. (laughs) And then as time went on, you know, (laughs) and it it wasn't so much laziness, it was just I took on too much. I, I, you know, bit off more than I could chew. And I just had to be realistic about my abilities and my energy levels and not stress myself up because I have that tendency of loom. You know, I get loom very easily. And I think it is because, what is that, high achiever kind of personality, you know? (laughs) So I don't think that's necessarily... It depends. It depends. What is your reason for cutting back on, you know, the things you hoped to do? Is it laziness? Is it, you know, some kind of negative motivation? Or is it just a realization that I was aspiring too much? I have to get my feet on the ground. I have to be more realistic. Because often teachers, I mean, if you go to teachers and you talk to them about this kind of thing, they will say, take it easy, be relaxed, don't (laughs) stress yourself out. So, yeah, because if you're still, I mean, in those situations, I didn't stop doing retreat. I didn't stop doing virtuous things. I just cut down. So I think, yeah, it depends. So it depends, yeah, are you totally giving up? doing anything virtuous or are you just doing it in a more realistic more because sometimes I mean it does happen sometimes people take on too much try to do too much and they burn out and then they have to stop altogether or they even get discouraged and just this is too hard I can't do it and they completely stop so that's a danger in trying to do more than we're really capable of the four ways of gathering disciples um, does this mean that we should all be trying to become teachers, like have it in our minds somewhere that, you know, we should be, yeah, that's kind of one of our goals is to become a teacher, either maybe this life or future lives? Um, I mean, those four are explained after the six perfections. <laughs> that's the point. <laughs> They come in the, in the long rim. Um, that might say something, 
you know, that a bodhi, you know, like in the in the order of things, you know, you first train in the uh, basic teachings, the initial level of the Lamrim, the middling level, then you learn bodhicitta, you, you train in the bodhis, um, you know, methods for developing bodhicitta, practice the six perfections. So I think the assumption is by that time, you're, you know, you've been practicing a long time and studying a long time and very familiar with the six perfections. I don't know if every single person will necessarily become teachers. I don't think so. Like just looking at the Tibetans, you know, there are many who go into retreat and spend the rest of their days in retreat and they don't necessarily become teachers. So I don't think there's a necessity. Uh, it's like a must that you have to become a teacher. Also, they may think, well, in this lifetime, I'll really work on my mind and cultivate these positive qualities and get realizations, and then in a, maybe in a lo- another life I'll be I'll be a teacher. Because I mean, the bodhisattva path does involve teaching others. That's the whole point. I want to become a Buddha so that I can help others. How do you help others? The best way is teaching them the Dharma. So it's kind of a given if you're really following the bodhisattva's path that you want to teach others. But it doesn't necessarily mean in this very lifetime that you will have to do that. But at some point, some point along the way, <laughs> you got to get out there and teach the Dharma to others. And so these are the practices you do when you, when you are in that role, in that mode. Uh, someone asks, to go to a pure land, do you have to be, um, do you have to be a bodhisattva first? No. That's, I don't think so. You can be an ordinary being. And then someone else asks, if we doubt too much and have wrong views and sometimes want to leave the Dharma, does that create negative karma? If we doubt too much? If we doubt too much and, and have, have wrong, wrong views, views and sometimes want to leave the Dharma. Is that negative karma? Well, it depends on the kind of doubt that you have, because um, the Dalai Lama actually says we should have doubt. It's good to doubt. We shouldn't just blindly believe uh, the teachings. We should investigate them. So that kind of doubt, wanting to investigate and check if it's true or not, that's healthy doubt. But the doubt that's negative is doubt that is leaning in the direction of uh, conclusion like, oh, there's no such thing as enlightenment, there's no such thing as karma, there's no such thing as rebirth. So if we're going in that direction of, you know, rejecting certain teachings that are important for our practice, that's the kind of doubt that's negative. It's negative because it can lead, if you keep going in that direction, then you will end up with a wrong view. A wrong view is when you've decided... I don't believe in rebirth, I don't believe in karma, I don't believe in enlightenment. You've kind of shut the door on those possibilities. So those are negative because once you get there, what's the point of practicing? What's the point of doing dharma? There's no enlightenment, no past lives, no future lives, no karma, it's just all a bunch of rubbish. So that's when you, you know, make, close the door on dharma. So just having doubt that isn't gone that far, but you're still 
in the door. <laughs> You're still questioning, thinking, investigating. You know, that's not necessarily negative. So it just depends on how far you go with your doubts and if it does turn into a wrong view. Um, so just be on the lookout for that. Have mindfulness, have awareness. And if you do notice that's starting to happen in your mind, do something about it. Try to do deal with it on your own. And, and that's not always easy to do. So go to a teacher or senior dharma, friends, students, and talk to them. Talk about what's going on in your mind. Get help. It's also helpful to try to remember times when you did have more certainty, when you did have faith, when you did have devotion. Your mind was more clear and inspired and enthusiastic about practicing the Dharma and realize, okay, I've been there. I've been in that state of mind before, and I can get back to that again. So doubt is just a temporary thing. It comes and goes. So... Don't identify with it and see it as something permanent and this is who I am. This is how I will be forever and ever and ever. Okay, it's just a temporary thing, just a phase I'm going through and let's deal with it, try to get back to that state of clarity and joy and enthusiasm. And if you can't, again, if you can't do it on your own, seek help. Okay, so we'll stop there.